Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Institute for Government for this event, Establishing New Public Bodies, What Have We Learnt? I'm Matthew Gill. I'd like to thank the Trade Remedies Authority and Deloitte for kindly supporting this event, and thanks to all of you joining us live, uh, who I know have prioritised us over the first England game of the World Cup, so thank you very much indeed. Um, before we start, uh, some brief housekeeping arrangements. Uh, we'll be tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFGPublicBodies, so please follow and tweet along. If you're watching online, please do send in your questions as early as you like, and you can post questions in the panel on the right of your screen. For those in the room, a microphone will be available during the Q&A portion of the event, so have a think about what you might ask at that time. And we'll have a video and sound recording of the event on our website within 24 hours. There are several hundred public bodies in the UK, depending on how you count them, ranging from NHS England to Companies House. Governments announced plans to create some more in the coming years, including the Future Systems Operator, the Office for Local Government and Great British Railways. There are strict guidelines on when a public body can be created, but to establish one well is a difficult task. And this event is going to address that practical question. How can new bodies be set up for success, given the need to establish effective operations quickly, as well as building a strong reputation with decision makers and with the public? Our panel has a thematic focus on economic and trade bodies, and we're fortunate to have speakers with us who've been involved in establishing a wide variety of those. Um, beginning immediately, immediately to my left, Oliver Griffith is the CEO of the Trade Remedies Authority, which defends UK economic interests against unfair international trade practices. He was previously the UK's chief trade negotiator with the US, and was also involved in setting up the Green Investment Bank, which invests in green infrastructure and is now privately owned. Thank you for joining us, Oliver. Kerry Smith is the Director General for Strategy and Investment at the Department for International Trade. He was previously a director at UK Government Investments, where, amongst other things, he was shareholder director of the British Business Bank, which makes financial markets work better for smaller businesses. Thank you for being here, Kerry. Kate McGavin is Policy Director at the UK Infrastructure Bank, which aims to increase <coughs> infrastructure investment across the UK. She was previously Devolution Director at the Cabinet Office and has held a wide range of senior roles in DCMS. Very warm well welcome to you too, Kate. Alex Massey is a partner in Deloitte's Human Capital Practice. He's worked across central government as well as for numerous public bodies, having delivered organisation design masterclasses as part of the major project's Leadership Academy for senior civil servants. He's no stranger to our subject today. Uh, it's good to have you with us, Alex. And, and finally, Sean Jones is the Value for Money Director at the National Audit Office. She's worked in a wide variety of areas during her NAO career, but is now responsible for Value for Money at the centre of government, including the Cabinet Office and HM Treasury. Welcome, Sean. So let's start by exploring our panellists' experience of um, establishing bodies. Um, to begin um, with, with you, Oliver, you recently established the, the Trade Remedies Authority, the TRA, uh, but were also involved in setting up the Green Investment Bank some years ago. W what did you learn from the Green Investment Bank experience, and, and what's different this time around? Great. Well, thank you very much, Matthew, and thanks for holding us today. So I think you've asked us to summarise in three minutes um, so I will do it 11 years in three minutes, um, and focus on strategic alignment and leadership um, from Green Investment Bank, and then turn on to, to Trade Revenues Authority. 
So strategic alignment, what I'm really talking about is being really clear in terms of what the strategy is. And you know, this would be a basic building block of organizational design that you, you're very clear on your strategy and then you build your people, your processes um, and, and your structures to follow from that. And yet I don't think it goes quite as sequentially as that typically uh, in the public sector and that we're sort of building things in parallel. And there's quite a gap between the political vision and the strategy and then between the strategy and, and building a viable business. And you're filling those gaps very much in the public eye so that you have a lot of people that are pretty sure what the right answer is, um, which you're, you're mediating. Um, and just the importance of a communication team there to, to keep out ahead of that. And then looking at the, the leadership, I think one of the great gifts you have in these new bodies is that every single person has chosen to join. Um, very rare. Um, and those individuals, in my experience, are almost always heavily motivated by the public policy role that, the, that this organisation has been set up to meet. And so I think as the leadership, that puts a huge onus on focusing on that why. Why do we exist rather than what do we do? Whether what do we do is, is the, the easy bit to focus on, I think. And really attending to the culture of the organisation. So you're going to have this blend of public and private. And what dominates? Is it just the biggest single sector there? You know, the, the people that represent one particular uh, viewpoint. Is it the loudest person in the office? Um, actually, I think there's a huge part that you can play both in terms of setting the values and the behaviours and, and how those are actually translated and important to attend to that. And also being conscious that the thing that you walk past is probably the thing that defines your culture um, most pertinently for people. Just turning to the Trade Remedies Authority, and so I joined 26 months after the first employee, so at a slightly different stage, but two things there. First has been the challenge of building an organisation where there is zero domain expertise. So when we were doing Green Investment Bank, there were quite a lot of bankers that had done renewable energy. Um, actually, Deloitte did a, a really important work with us on our initial cohort to help to um, train up people there. And actually, I think the organisation built too fast. Um, I wasn't there, but that, that would be a, my, my perspective on it. And my, my second reflection would be just how political um, our cases have ended up being, certainly compared to the investments we had at Green Investment Bank. And I think that was a bit of a surprise to people in, who'd been involved in the design phase, um, where I think the feeling was the organisation would be given more space. But I think that comes back to the strategy point, that you know, if one of your basic design principles is operational independence, how deep is that strategic alignment? Great, thank you very much. So interesting themes there on um, the importance of setting a clear strategy, leading a team that have come in specifically to be part of that, of that, of that body, and also the, the depth of independence um, of, of the organisation. Um, Kerry, you um, worked on setting up the British Business Bank, um, which followed the, the Green Investment Bank's lead in, in some key aspects of governance, including being a, a pub, public limited company. Um, what, why was the PLC model used again in the BBB's case, and what, what do you think it, it did for you? Thanks. Um, so just a bit of background. There's a really long history of government uh, trying to intervene in markets to deal with access to finance issues. You had the Macmillan uh, Report of 1932. Uh, you had ICFC. You've had lots and lots of different interventions uh, over time. Uh, and I was actually involved in uh, the early to mid uh, 2000s with yet another government intervention uh, trying to get into uh, that space. 
One of the things that uh, I observe over all of those interventions was they kind of worked for a period of time, but they became, I would say, slightly sclerotic. They kind of became, um, uh, they lacked agility to, to respond to changing markets, um, partly because they became uh, institutionalized, and partly, I think, due to the governance arrangements uh, that sit around um, uh, each intervention. Uh, the British Business Bank was uh, created partly to try and create a more coherent and coordinated approach. Uh, you had lots of different bits of government. You had uh, HMRC, you had Treasury, you had Biz Basel Burr, or whatever it was called at the time, DTI, Small Business Service. Um, uh, uh, plus you had uh, devolved administrations, all trying to intervene in this space. And the idea was to try and bring a central coordinating uh, function uh, that would look across the market and most importantly it would act commercially in a pretty uncommercial space I mean by definition the bank is operating in part of the market which the market doesn't want to serve so it's operating in an uncommercial part of the space but we wanted to use some of the commercial disciplines uh, from the market and combine that with a a good understanding of the market, so we wanted uh, the organization to be close to the market. Um, so the idea was we would bring together people who had policy skills from the civil service and, and people with a commercial background uh, into a new institution. Uh, one of the things that uh, I would say that uh, probably challenges all of us as we set up new organizations is the governance arrangements from the center. Uh, in the case of the British Business Bank, the Treasury said, we just don't, we don't trust you yet. We don't know what your risk function is like. So we will not give you freedoms until you've proven yourself. Uh, and then over time, the kind of the, uh, the dead hand of the treasury tries to reassert itself with more and more control over time. Using the PLC structure was a deliberate attempt to uh, create an alternative approach. So you don't necessarily have to have ex-ante controls where you get permissions in advance but you rely on an audit-based ex-post uh, control regime where the bank has to meet the highest standards of corporate governance. And it also allowed us to recruit a much stronger board. One of the lessons I took from uh, the organization was the quality of the board is critically important. So in an organization that has a fiduciary board, itself relatively unusual within government, uh, if you can attract, uh, which I feel we did, really strong, high-quality NEDs, they will be able to provide challenge to the executives and they will be able to reconcile potentially conflicting objectives so the bank doesn't run the risk of hitting a target but missing the point. Uh, what you have is an organization which is well run uh, with good accountability and the PLC structure uh, was, uh, our, in our view, was the, the way to do it. Now, in practice, there were some challenges that uh, came from that. It, it wasn't quite perfect and you still had people in bits of government who had access to finance in their job title, so therefore felt it was their role to start intervening and uh, interfering. But by having uh, the, a, a fiduciary board with an undertaking of operational independence, which had to meet these uh, uh, pretty well-established standards that they were familiar with, we felt that we had a good argument, and I think Treasury accepted it, we were able to enjoy more freedoms than would normally be extended to a new public organization. Thanks so much, Kerry. And I'm, I'm nodding along. I should have confessed at the start I was involved in this business bank process myself prior to this, to this role. And we, we've been sort of going in, um, in chronological sequence from the Green Investment Bank to the British Business <coughs> Bank and then to the UK Infrastructure Bank, um, Kate. So 
Um, obviously, there's a lot of prior experience there, but the UK Infrastructure Bank's done some things differently. It's uh, it's not a PLC. It's owned by H H sponsored by HMT di directly. So, um, what what have you learned from prior experience, and what have you what are you doing differently? Yeah, thanks, Matthew. I mean. I guess the first thing to say is, um, you're, you're right, there's, there's lots of prior experience to draw on, and that's exactly what uh, certainly I did with my job share partner when we arrived about 18 months ago as employee number 12, I think, in the bank. Uh, you know, the first thing I did was call Oliver, really, um, because we'd been given really good frameworks from Treasury. Um, you know, we, had a, we had a clear mission. Um, you know, the setup was uh, not short of sort of models um, to base ourselves on, but I don't think you can... Um, uh, you know that that is no um, uh, supplement for, or, or you know, um, uh, yeah, no supplement for, for having really good kind of personal experience that you can overlay on top of that. So I talked to Oliver and, and others about their experience of how do you make that live. You know, what are the kinds of challenges that we were likely to to face. The other thing to say is that um, you know, UKIB, uh, the Infrastructure Bank, was given a really uh, interesting challenge in that we were opened and asked to start doing deals you know, kind of from day one, which is unconventional in government terms. Normally, an institution such as that would have been incubated for a, for a certain period in order for us to kind of build our teams and build our expertise. But I think it was absolutely the right thing to do, and I think that's what everyone who, you know, who's in the bank now feels... Um, it was the right thing to do. It, it meant that we had to be swift, we had to be decisive, and we had to have a really good relationship with our sponsorship team in Treasury. And we have, and we continue to do so. Um, but it has allowed us to do, you know, 10 deals uh, in, the, in the first 18 months. And certainly our chief executive's narrative is um, we could have waited, but actually the mission that we have around net zero and growth is an urgent one. So it's good to get on with it. Finally, I would say that the approach that we try to take is probably one of kind of beg, borrow, steal, but also dream. So you, know, you can go and cut and paste, lift and shift from any other organization to a certain degree, and you definitely should. You, know, you shouldn't reinvent the wheel if it doesn't need reinventing. But it's really important to hold on to the inherent sort of privilege and value of being <coughs> set up to do something. You know, if, if government could do it without setting an up an arm's length body, it would, and I think this comes to your point, Oliver. Um, so being able to hold on to that, hold on to the fact that you've got a blank sheet of paper and you can do things differently and you should be thinking and challenging yourself about doing things differently, um, that is really valuable and that's one of the things that we think about regularly in the bank. Thank you. Um, let me bring um, Alex in. Uh, so we, we've heard from um, people who've worked sort of on, on the project quite deeply for a long period of time. In your role as a, as a consultant, you've obviously seen multiple projects um, and, and you've worked with, on, on a range of these kinds of things um, in, in, in government. What kind of thing do you see as being uh, really important in developing an organisation and what, what either have we missed in this session or do people tend to miss uh, when they embark on these projects? Thank you, and, and um, I think it's often less about kind of overlooking but getting overtaken by events. There's a really good kind of intent at the start, but then just the pressures of the day job um, prevent the, um, the setup team um, being as effective as, as they intend to. Three things I would call out. One, I think what often happens is um, setup teams, establishment teams tend to focus on what I would call the narrow organization design. So roles, responsibilities, appointing people to posts. And obviously that's critically important. But Oliver, you mentioned other things like processes, governance structures, ways of working, culture. 
Um, and I, I would really encourage anyone embarking on, on a similar journey to think about the broader operating model, not just the, the narrow organization design. Second thing is, I think what often happens is sort of polarization. Either setup teams think about the day one organization, or they think about the sort of steady state long-term uh, target operating model. And I would say, you know, both are necessary but not sufficient. And um, what I think best practice is, is having a sort of long-term strategic intent. Where are we heading? What does our target look like at a high level? Thinking through in detail, of course, what the day one uh, operating model and structures look like. And then thinking about transitional states and being agile about the transition between day one and getting to, to steady state. And then finally, I would just echo a point I think you've already made, Oliver, around organization design and setup really is about executing to a strategy. But obviously in the real world, strategy changes. So thinking about the mechanisms that one can put in place to check in when that strategy evolves and think through what does that mean for, for, for structures and operating models. Great, thanks so much. Um, and um, Sean, at the end is from the, from the NAO, and uh, we're here cheerfully talking about establishing public bodies, but obviously the, the, the wider context is a focus on efficiency in public service and indeed on minimizing the number of new bodies wherever possible. Um, you reviewed the oversight of public bodies last year. What, what did you find when you did that and what, what can government do better in this space? Yeah, thanks, Matthew. Um, first of all, I'm sure you've seen me all vigorously nodding as I'm hearing my fellow speakers talk about things that hopefully you'll also hear me talk about. So I think there's a lot of alignment in, in what we're all saying about what makes an effective ALB. So just to set some context before I dip into some of our findings. So I'm sure all of you here agree that ALBs really are the engine room of government. You know, one of the things that we did when we approached this topic was to really make sure that we were setting that recognition within the team that ALBs are where policy sort of becomes reality. They do a lot of the heavy lifting across government. There's a, a lot of people involved, a lot of money involved, and the stakes are really high. So it's basically really important that oversight and governance arrangements and all those processes are right and proportionate to let them do their thing in, in the best way that, that they can. So our report looked at the life cycle of an ALB, and by that what we mean is Cabinet Office's role in supporting ALB setup and then helping departments and ALBs with their framework agreements and then the sponsorship and governance as that ALB matured and sort of became business as usual. So I suppose three main points here, and, and they, they're all quite similar in the sense that they probably have a big so what question. Now as auditors, you always say, the so what question is, you know, what does it matter if I have this piece of paper? What, what does it matter if I have this framework? And I guess these three points are all uh, similar in that it really does matter because if you don't get these things right then that organization is not free to run in the best way possible so it's not about sort of clogging up with with sort of paperwork and bureaucracy it's about setting that intent and then allowing sort of bodies to go and do their their own thing but of course as an auditor I'm bound to say that but um, I thought I'd get that in before I run run through the findings so we reviewed, uh, I think, nearly 40 business cases uh, for ALB setup. So these are the cases that go to Cabinet Office and Treasury um, when public bodies are being set up. Now, these are really variable in quality, so there are a lot of things missing that you would expect to see in business cases of this nature. So things like 
Um, the cabinet offices three tests, you know, sort of the value for money test. Um, whether sort of the, the business case drafters had really thought about uh, the alternatives for delivering that policy, you know, any unit within a department, different kind of vehicle, or whether ALB was sort of the, the first option rather than thinking that, that through properly. Um, costs and benefits of setting up that ALB, you know, sort of one to three to five year plans where those vision and those strategies translated into business as usual. Some of that was, was, was quite thin and lacking. Um, and I guess coming back to that so what point, it's important because as colleagues have already said uh, today, if you haven't got that mission and that vision and that, that sort of shared collective um, you know, route that you're, that you're aiming to go down, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to hit the ground running um, without those things in place. Um, the second is framework agreements. So these are essentially sort of the, the, the contract between sort of ALBs uh, and departments. And they're, they're meant to be beneficial for both sides, right? They're meant to be able to show how independent or how arm's length that public body will be from its department, but also to set out things like what controls are expected to be executed, uh, what the governance arrangements are, what the kind of data flows, you know, might be. Uh, and that, of course, is, is really important because there's that clarity then, you know. ALBs know what the expectations are and departments are also aware of the ALB's autonomy and independence. Um, and at least that's the, that's the, um, that's the aim, right, uh, to get to. So these framework agreements that we reviewed, I think we reviewed 15 to 20 framework agreements. A lot of them were really out of date. So things had moved on and ALB had matured um, and the governance arrangements, for instance, were, were still at a stage of you know, one to three years. So perhaps uh, overly, overly governanced, if you like, they hadn't stepped back or been proportionate. Um, other, other, other points around sort of control agreements, controls probably looking <coughs> a bit too tight for an independent or autonomous organisation. So in practice, that might mean ALB having to go cap in hand to departments far too often to, to bid for pots of money, you know, slowing them down, not, not making them flexible. Um, and the last point, I guess I'm cheating a bit here because the last point is really a series of in interconnected issues to do with sponsorship and ongoing governance. Uh, again, you won't be surprised as auditors, data is a really big thing for us. We often find that data is a real problem when government comes to sort of um, evidence how well it's doing something or, or not, as the case may be. Um, so we found really that there was a lack of data at the cabinet office level to understand how you're managing the risk landscape for ALBs, you know, not all ABs are created equal, you know, it's not one size fits all, but equally there should be a set of proportionate risk controls that you can think about at that level to support your review of public bodies, to support where ALBs are going. Uh, and I won't go too much into risk because I think next time we'll talk a bit about that in the next set of questions. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, sponsorship arrangements. So sponsorship is a really key skill that I think sometimes departments don't pay enough attention to. Um, and we talk a bit in the report about how we would really like to see departments stepping up that ability to be more effective sponsors of ALBs to, to let them thrive, really. Great. Thanks very much, Sean. Um, so lo lots in there and actually bringing out some, some themes that we've heard um, run, run through the panel. Um, and I think as we, as we come to, we'll do a second round of questions uh, amongst the panellists and then, and then come to the, the room for questions. But there's a, there's a question that's come up online, and uh, the most popular one, and I'm going to ask sort of half of it now, 
in combination with the second round, which is about how realistic is it to establish a public body that's truly independent of, of, um, of government. So, Oliver, I wanted to come back to you uh, on, on, on this question, because with the bodies that you've been involved with, the TRA, you've talked already about some of the decision-making becoming more political than people had perhaps expected. Certainly with the Green Investment Bank, um, that was privatised a few years after, after start-up. So um, how does the political context in which a body's set up um, affect um, what you need to do and the longevity of the body? And should bodies be always set up for the long term? Right, so longevity, I mean, just take that, mm. that bit at the end first. So uh, for me, this follows the strategy again. Mm. So if you have a function that is going to be needed for the long term and you think the best way to do this is through an arm's length body plan for the long term but there's going to be lots of cases where you don't need that so if you've got a, effectively a project-based organization like hs2 then presumably that feels like much more like like a temporary organization um but i think even when you're thinking about longevity it's really hard in my experience to to grow the deep roots and and as you said on, on green investment bank when we were setting that up, all the kind of talk at the time was that this was going to be the UK's answer to KFW, the German Development Bank, um, that this was a sort of generational challenge that we had on, around green infrastructure. This was put into primary legislation, and yet it was sold within four years um, of being established because it was profitable, um, in essence. And similarly with the Trade Remedies Authority, we have been reviewed within a month of being established mm. um, because the data and the politics led in, in different directions um, on, on particular cases. And I think what that comes back to is, is you know, and to answer the, the question that's come in online, is the fact that all these organisations, of course, exist with a political permit. Mm. Um, and just the, the importance of keeping that permit up to date and recognising that political fashions change. Um, so I don't think there's any God-given right for any institution to exist. You, you have to, of course, keep the, the political support for that. You talked a bit just in terms of pressures, three pressures that I wanted to, to highlight. I mean, the first one is in terms of you know, getting moving, and Kate was talking about this. Um, you know, I felt that there was real pressure on the Green Investment Bank to just get investing, and there'd been the sale of HS1 suddenly meant that we had 750 million that had to be spent in a particular year, um, even before establishment. By contrast, the business growth fund, which was owned by the banks, took it much more slowly. Um, so neither, uh, not a value judgment, just yeah. that pressure is certainly and that there. was technically not government money, was it? That was a government requirement to use private money in a particular way. Yeah, mm. exactly. Um, second pressure, just the high level of public scrutiny. I mean, it's sort of obvious in, in a way. Um, but making sure you keep ahead of that. And, and uh, I often think back, what we did wrong on uh, Green Investment Bank was we allowed this sort of competition to get going in terms of where should the bank be headquartered. And so we started getting cities that were coming in and making pitches to Vince Cable. And then we thought, oh, this thing's got out of control. And then we had to have our own competition. And then there were thir 34 cities um, that, that bid in and it just absorbed one member of team for three or four months. When it's a small team and, and, and we really probably that wasn't the best way to, to have spent our time. Um, and the last one is really an absence of pressure. So I was president of a fintech startup and I spent, I don't know, a quarter or a third of my time raising funding um, or talking to investors. But I think on a new public body, if you have that political support, the reality is that the funding 
sort of follows. Um, and, and that's you know, definitely a, uh, a luxury that, that I think people should enjoy um, because it, it's not there in other contexts. Indeed, thanks very much. Um, Kerry, you might want to come in on any or all of that, the political context, the importance of independence, but I wanted to ask you particularly about um, sponsorship, which Sean mentioned, and um, which you've got a particular perspective on from your role in, in um, UKGI. What, what does UKGI bring to the sponsorship process and how do you, do you work with sponsor departments or with central departments to try and achieve the, the best outcomes from the bodies that you, you oversaw? So, okay, UKGI, UK Government Investments, <clears throat> um, is itself an arm's length body, uh, a company owned by the Treasury. Um, and uh, it uh, proudly has a strap line about being a centre of excellence in government on corporate governance. Um, I mean, part of the, at the root of this, I think, is why set something up at arm's length? And you shouldn't just set something up at arm's length because you fancy it. There is usually a reason for it to be arm's length. Now, the reason is because there's something that is best not done by civil servants. You look at the problem and you either want expertise, you want to be able to access parts of the labour market, and so you want to be free of civil service pay controls. Uh, you'll be looking at something where actually political interference is bad in terms of the outcomes you're going to do. It's a rod for, your, for, for the government's back, in a sense, of creating this arms length nature. Um, uh, and so there'll be times when it is important that it is uh, at arm's length. Now, arm's length isn't quite the same as independent, and none of these things ever, are ever independent. Uh, uh, within the British Business Bank, it was operational independence, and that was very specifically that the bank was operationally able to make decisions about whether it should start new programmes, do individual deals, and aspirationally, close programmes. Now, I'm not sure I'd ever really managed to do very much in the closing of programmes, but we understood it was even harder for central government to ever close programmes. So the, the benefit of sponsorship by UKGI, I think, uh, I'm slightly particular here, I was eight years in UKGI, um, uh, is that in UKGI you have an organisation that is one of the greatest advocates of using the arms, being arm's length and understanding why you should be arm's length, but if an organisation is meant to be arm's length, UKGI will defend that arm's length nature uh, to the sponsoring department and will remind the sponsoring department of the thought process that they went through when they were creating this thing uh, at arm's length. Um, one of the things I think the bank sometimes, I, I think it takes a while for an organisation to work out what this independence means. So operational independence is not the same as fiscal independence. You are still dependent upon the government uh, and you need to maintain a licence to operate. And that means you've got to be savvy to uh, the political context uh, in which you are operating. But I think what uh, UKGI was able to bring was a level of scrutiny uh, that was rooted in the fact that UKGI has a lot of commercial people with commercial experience, who they're corporate financiers, ex-bankers, who were able to challenge the institution and really look through the fluff and the, the annual report and have a look at the numbers and provide sensible challenge to the KPIs, to the target setting, to the performance, in a way that gave the sponsor department comfort that there was indeed scrutiny. Uh, I've often observed civil servants feeling quite scared in the face of people with a private sector background, oh, I don't know what to do. And so they'll revert to process as a way of actually uh, exerting control rather than necessarily engaging on the subject. I think with UKGI, the team we were able to bring together uh, combined people with a political civil service background and people with a 
uh, commercial background to provide sensible challenge. But then once we felt that we'd kicked the tires, we were able to turn around to the farm and say, actually, this organization is doing what has been set up to do. We've agreed a business plan. You've appointed a brilliant board. Let that board hold the executive's feet to the fire for performance and don't interfere. And the, the, the biggest thing uh, that I think we did was trying to tell people to back off. The other thing is that I was on the board of the business bank for eight years. Um, and um, <clears throat> I think during that time, I had four directors in the treasury. I had five or six directors in Burbay's biz DTI. Um, uh, and uh, that level of churn meant that we were forever inducting people. Oh, this is what it's for. No institutional memory, no understanding of the context in which you were set up. Nobody could remember the NAO report that came, you know, was done that said, well, you need to have more coherence. I was, uh, I felt the, the, the one person in the team who had any knowledge about access to finance within government, because I've been doing it off and on for 15 years, and, and there just wasn't that expertise. So people in the UK GI are generally, but not always, in post for a long period of time. They understand how the organisation they, they're looking after works. They will have deep relationships with the uh, executives, but they will still be able to provide challenge. And I just don't think the civil service culture is very amenable to that. I think the constant churn of people means that you get a load of personality and whim can, can, can determine how an organisation is managed. And, and people just don't have the facts. They just don't know what happens. So you reinvent wheels over and over again. And with UKGI, I think you get some continuity, which leads to better outcomes in, in the medium and longer term. Mm. Thanks so much, Kerry. Um, so, I mean, Kate, to continue the, the theme of sponsorship loosely, I mean, you, you had experience within government of being the, in, in the sponsor team for, for bodies and then came to the UK Infrastructure Bank um, with, with that background. Um, how have you found the transition uh, from central government into being a public body yourself, and particularly a public body um, that needs to make such extensive use of private sector expertise? Mm. Yeah, really interesting to sort of listen to the discussion, and I, and I really recognise what you're saying, Kerry. I mean, I've um, I've sponsored lots of different kinds of organisations, you know, slightly different perhaps to some of the ones represented here, but including uh, you know broadcasters, regulators, um, cultural institutions who have a slightly different uh, existence and rationale. But I think that there is definitely something in all of that about. You know, there is a long-term conversation that has to be had, and as you say, Kerry, you need to try and maintain some kind of continuity to that. Um, but both sides need to be looking at the market or the environment in which they're operating and continuing to ask themselves, are we the right organisation to be present here? Do we have the right mandate? Are we, are we still effective even when the environment around us is changing? <coughs> and certainly in the, in the media regulation space, you know, we, we found that in 2003 media regulators were con con uh, sort of uh, converged into Ofcom uh, as a response to that, and that has been a very successful uh, independent regulator. I guess um, that getting that length of the arm right um, is, is one of the things that uh, it's worth spending a bit of time on. Getting those relationships right at official and at ministerial level is important. And again, in a department like DCMS, where the Secretary of State changes incredibly regularly, uh, that is a challenge in and of itself. I guess the two things that we're thinking about in the bank at the moment, the, you know, sort of one good and, and one bad, one perhaps uh, on, on the kind of you know, the more challenging, less good front is the weight of the frameworks that come with setting up a body. Um, and when you're trying to set it up at the, you know, at the outset, that is a heavy burden, particularly when it comes to procurement, recruitment, uh, and it means you have to front load a lot of resource into just servicing that. So, so that's tricky and it has, you know, 
on recruitment, I would always say think of a number and, and double it uh, when it comes to how long you think it's going to take uh, to, to recruit your teams. So that is definitely um, a challenge. I don't have an answer for it, but you know, it's one to, one to have a think about. The really good side of things and the bit that I really enjoy about my job you know, day to day is the alchemy that happens when you bring public and private sector together in an organisation like the Infrastructure Bank. So we have civil servants and bankers coming together. And in terms of building our culture, we're at an early stage, but all of us think that um, you know, the best way about to do this is to think about what's the best that we bring from our backgrounds and our cultures and how do we turn that into something new. Um, and certainly on a, on a personal level, as a, as a job share, um, explaining to, to the bankers who I work with what on earth this is, this outlandish way of working, um, and, and demonstrating to them why it works uh, has, been, has been fun and satisfying. And, and I really hope that when some of them go back into the private world, uh, they will take that, that with them as, as something, as a, as a kind of positive experience. Great. Thank you very much. Um, so, Alex, we've heard a little bit about um, you know, the, the life cycle of these things and the, pro the stages that have to be gone through in order to bring a, a public body in, in, into being. Yeah. And I wonder, from your experience, you might want to talk a little bit about um, what changes as you go through that, that life cycle in the early stages of, of a public yeah. body? What different leadership styles and priorities um, do you have to focus on? Uh, and and <coughs> what are the most important things at each point? So I think, for me, the first thing to say, and it's been really fascinating listening to the remarks so far, is just recognising that there are different stages. I think you mentioned the major projects, Leadership Academy, right at the beginning. It's a central tenant of the MPLA. The, the projects are temporary organizations that need to evolve as they go through the, the project life cycle. And I think that the setup and then delivery teams for, for, for these new bodies is exactly the same. It's no different. So thinking about stages and life cycles, I think is really important. The other thing is, it's a bit 101, but there's a sort of model of change that I quite like and it's the analogy of a hill and the leader and his or her team and stakeholders being at the bottom of the hill. And then the leader trying to take the team up to the top of the hill and collectively over the other side. And what tends to happen is the team and the leader gets separated and the leader eventually gets to the top of the hill, sees the promised uplands and disappears off the other side. And meanwhile, maybe people in the team are sort of becoming a bit disenfranchised and falling back down the hill. Um, so I think, and Oliver, you mentioned it right at the beginning, kind of why and the purpose and, and remembering not to disappear over the hill and taking people with you at every stage, I think is, is very important. Um, you know, there, there are many models of leadership. One is kind of the hero model of leadership, and perhaps that's more important at the start and, you know, explaining the original strategy, the original mission and, and vision. But then as the recruitment is done and as one transfers into business as usual and steady state, perhaps more adaptive models of leadership are, uh, are more important. And back to the organization design topic, thinking about how to uh, engage staff and stakeholders in, okay, so we've reached a different phase now. How do we co-create? How do we redesign uh, and change our organization in response to feedback so that we're continually uh, fit for purpose for, for the way ahead? And then as a change management guy, I would say last thought, no one's ever criticized anyone for doing too much change management. Um, and as the pressures of the day job grow, just keeping <coughs> on thinking about the basics of communications, listening, feedback, buddying, whatever the interventions might be, making sure that there are sufficient of those in place as the organization evolves and adapts. Great, thanks Alex. Um, <laughs> 
So yeah, lots of lots of different perspectives here. Um, some discussion actually of the um, uh, the extent to which governance and structures anticipate um, a, a future and need to be built in advance. And Sean, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about whether you think government sometimes over-engineers things early on, um, or um, how government can adapt its risk appetite um, to a, a startup and, and government trying to incubate a startup within the public sector. Yeah. Um Really difficult question, so thanks for that. <laughs> Even though I've been giving it some thought. So it's not something we specifically talk about at length in our report, but it is something that we think an awful lot about in general across our entire sort of work programme. And I think it does come down to, you mentioned risk and risk appetite. Risk and innovation, right, and, and how those are related, assuming that when you're talking about start startups, you're talking about something that's a little unconventional for government, something that's a little risky or innovative. Um, I think there is a perception that auditors distrust innovation um, and whilst it's true that we do like to see the basics be done right, you know, um, data, governance, you know, the right leadership, etc, all, all that good stuff, um, clearly innovation has got its, its place. But I think what we often see um, across programmes and projects, um, we talked about it a bit with the government's COVID response, is that idea that if something is innovative, then it doesn't need the level of controls that other more conventional programmes, when of course the inverse is true. Um, and we've talked about this already, that you know, if, you're going, if you're going to take um, something incredibly risky, um, assuming that's what, we're, that's what we mean when we talk about a startup, then you want to have, you know, you want to have those controls in place, but you also want to have those check-in points because things will be changing so quickly. So what you don't want to do is throw everything out and come back in a year and realise that your kind of pet project has been a disaster and it's too late to sort of bring it back. Um, I think in terms of um, risk appetite, uh, coming back to kind of what I talked about briefly um, for the last question, uh, I think government isn't always very good at understanding what its risk appetite is and then being able to flex that. So it tends to be quite static sometimes. So it stays through the cycle. So, you know, something more risky at the start, or let's just keep that level of kind of, you know, let's keep that level of oversight or, or you know, or vice versa the other way around. And I do think that really simple things like, you know, um, like piloting approaches, like, you know, check-ins, you know, feedback loops, making better use of, you know, IPA reports, assurance boards, NEDs, and their experience, just to make sure that if you're doing something that's exciting, fast-paced, risky, that everyone is comfortable with that risk appetite, including up to the sort of ministerial level, and you've got your checks and balances. Um, and I think it is possible to do both and not to get kind of carried away with the innovation for its own sake. Great, thanks very much. So I'll move on to, to questions now. I'm just going to begin with a couple that have come in online, um, but do um, have yours ready uh, in the room in a, in, in a moment. Um, and there's, there's a couple of related lines of question that come in. Um, so the, the question that uh, I mentioned about independence, the, uh, the second part of that is, in, is independence at risk without primary legislation? And there are other questions here as well about the importance of um, legislating, legislatory process in setting up organisations, and particularly the time it takes and the, the, the delay and, and capacity in, in legislation, uh, and also questions around whether the timelines and deadlines for setting up um, either the bodies that the panel have been involved with 
or indeed the aspirations that governments now got for new future bodies um, are, are realistic and, and, and achievable, or whether government systematically moves too quickly. So uh, timeliness and um, legislation. Uh, who would like to take either of those? Can I just pick up on, yeah. on that? So in terms of, the, uh, in terms of time scale, I mean, we, we created the bank. Um, we, it was, I think, announced in 2012, and uh, actually we were a week out in 2014 when we set up from our original target date, but we got it done uh, on time. I'd like to claim all the credit. It really wasn't me. Uh, was a brilliant, I was actually on holiday at the time. I was very upset. Um, uh, note to self, never try and have family holiday while uh, trying to set up a bank. Um, uh, but the, uh, so the timescales, I think, are, uh, they can be absolutely fine um, if, you kind of, if you do a proper bit of project management and think through what are the steps and what are we going to do. And actually having the pressure of a deadline, I think, is really important because it, it uh, um, absolutely concentrates minds. Um, I still remember uh, the 1st of November 2014. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember, yeah, anyway. Um, so uh, the question then about um, uh, independence and legislation. So one of my big regrets, I think, was not to go for legislation for um, the British Business Bank. So we had looked at uh, the legislation for the GIB and we thought, do we really need it? Does it what does it really give? But I think one of the things it would have given, I think it would have rooted the bank in the minds of the public sector uh, now, it could be changed, as we saw with the GIB, it was possible to change it. Um, but as the bank kind of came through uh, the, uh, you know, it, it was set up and then suddenly its mission changed radically with COVID and there was suddenly helicoptering money out there into the market and £74 billion pounds or whatever went through it. Um, it, it. The nature of the bank changed, obviously, and quite rightly, because it was responding to a public emergency. But it didn't have any grounding, I think, which legislation with some clear objectives might have helped it then go through a, a much more of a temporary crisis management process and then revert back to what it was doing before. Um, and I think it also means it would have been a discipline on the, on the sponsors and on the sponsoring department saying, well, this is what it says in the law, so we have much less freedom. And I think the lack of legislation with hindsight uh, introduced much more ambiguity for you know, bright entrepreneurial policy people in government to kind of shift the bank into some other space, which may not have actually been appropriate according to what it was set up to do. And not just because the world had changed, but they kind of, they thought it was a good idea. So they thought they'd move it in this direction. You could still have moved it, but it would have been a much more conscious decision than I think always happened. Yeah. But, Thanks. Kathy, can I just Alex. pick up on the point on timelines? Yeah. Just echo your point. I, I think these things can be done very quickly. I mean, I was just reflecting, I was involved in the design and setup of an organization at the start of a pandemic. And it, of the pandemic, it pretty much happened overnight. Um, and from my perspective, I, I actually quite enjoyed it because some of the options analysis that can lead to decision paralysis and take a long time to kind of make a decision on the optimum organization design happened really quickly and that was quite refreshing. I think it does come back to the point about stages though, because not everything was right in the first stage, the second stage, the third stage. And having a bit more of an agile approach, a bit, a feedback loops, ability to check back in and course correct turned out to be very important. Yeah, interesting. And so on, on legislation, it's, it's, you, you either, there's, there's flexibility that you have if you don't have legislation, permanence if you do, it takes time to do it if you want to do it. So it's a complicated question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd just come back quickly on, on both of them. Mm. Reflecting on, on the Trade Remedies Authority, so this was driven by a timetable that essentially was political, which was, you know, there may be a, a no-deal um, exit on the 1st of March 
2019, if everyone can cast their mind back, when, when this, this was a great discussion of, of the time. And the first <coughs> members of staff came through the door Trade Remedies Authority in October before. But there was a great political desire to have 120-person organisations set up for, for March. Um, and, and I think your, your political and your operational um, requirements are really different there. Um, and you know, I, I don't think that... I'm all for, for deadlines. And I wasn't around I at the time. Be sensible. But, but, but be sensible. That, 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 that feels like it maybe drives kind of perverse um, behaviours. Um, the one on, on the legislation, I mean, I'm just sort of... I remember it really well because it was right at the heart of the coalition government and, and the, the, the Lib Dems and, and Vince um, were sort of convinced that the way to kind of really embed it was to put primary legislation in place. And so there's a huge amount of time spent at the Quad over this and, and we ended up getting the legislation in. And then there was a change of government and everyone just wrote new legislation to say, right, we're, we're just going to sell it. Um, so I, I think it sort of, you know, it, it certainly, it, it can be helpful, I think, to your point in terms of keeping people honest um, in terms of does this have to be green forever and, and so forth um, so that you can't just suddenly change the, um, the targetry of the institution. But I ended up being a little bit cynical on, on how much it really beds you in. Yeah. Okay. Just to add, I mean, because we're going through legislation at the moment, so the, the bill to put us on a statutory purchasing is in the House at the moment. Um, and I, I, so I guess just one reflection on that process of... Uh, of, of, of the bill passing is that it does provide that scrutiny and provides an opportunity to think hard about the objectives of an organisation. The thing that has, I think, slightly surprised our Treasury sponsorship team, perhaps, I think they would acknowledge this, is the strength of feeling in the House of Lords over natural capital and the importance of treating that as an infrastructure class. Um, and actually, so that has been really helpful for us to, to, to sort of uh, lean into that debate, understand it, think about it. And probably as a result of that, um, you know, we put out a paper last week about our thinking on natural capital. I think if the bill hadn't been in flight, it probably would have taken us longer to get to that. I think that the pressure wouldn't have been there. So that has been interesting in terms of really bottoming out how people think about uh, the infrastructure challenge uh, right now. I mean, the other thing is obviously scrutiny by the devolves, and you know, uh, the, the process of doing a bill on that basis means that you flush some of that out and you, and, and, and you, you need to engage. Um, so I think both of those are um, positives in terms of the process, obviously for us. It remains to be seen how you know, long-term beneficial uh, having a legislative underpinning is. Thank you. Um, Chanda, do you want to add anything on Just, just to say, I suppose, you know, we're policy agnostic on whether legislation is, is a good thing or not. Clearly, pros and cons, um, but it speaks to that kind of clarity, doesn't it? Vision, clarity being set out. But equally, I think, I think one of our colleagues said it um, in response to the last question, um, government is really good at setting things up, perhaps less good at shutting things down. So I guess sort of considering what role legislation would have in the ease of you know, being more flexible on that side of things might be a consideration. Indeed, and um, keep an eye out for upcoming Institute for Government work on the abolishing of public bodies um, <laughs> uh, next year. Um, so let's move on to questions in the room. I'll try and take them in groups. Please wait for the microphone to come round and start by saying who you are and where you're from. Please do keep questions uh, brief. I'll continue to weave online questions in. Um, just a flag as well, Sean has to leave slightly early. So any questions for Sean on the NAO, please 
uh, get those in uh, first. So the gentleman here in the middle of the room. Thank you. Uh, Adam Marshall, uh, full disclosure, non-executive director of the TRA, amongst other things. Um, I wanted to come back to a point that Sean raised in her opening remarks, if I could, about framework agreements in particular. Um, to what extent do they sometimes become a bit of a straitjacket or very inflexible? Uh, for those of us who come from a private sector background, sometimes it seems like they can almost create a shadow board sitting on top of what is meant to be an independent board. And what would you say would be the, the lessons as ALBs mature in order to ensure that those framework agreements don't become a break on their progress or stop them from delivering the sort of effectiveness that you at the NAO would want to see? Excellent question. Thank you. Um, do you want me to take that now? Or uh, yeah, go for it. And then... um, I think it's right. I think there is a risk that framework agreements can become a straitjacket. And I suppose um, the best framework agreements that we saw were those that were set out clearly at the outset, were regularly revisited and actually renegotiated, discussed, whichever, whatever you'd like to sort of call that process. I suppose winding that back a bit... Um, and at risk of sounding a bit David Brent about this, you know, these things are always about people, not process. So if you've got that sponsorship um, relationship in the right place where you're having honest, open, challenging, yet supportive discussions, then it's much easier to say this bit about this control is really hampering this process. What can we do about it? Um, rather than it being a, you know, a stick to hit ALBs with or vice versa where... Um, departments feel like they're not getting what they need from their ALBs. So it really is, I think, it has to be about the sponsorship relationship and the, and the sort of the open and transparent discussions supported by data between those two groups to make sure that that framework agreement is not just a document <coughs> in a filing cabinet, it's a live, you know, vital thing that helps, helps sort of both sides do what they need to do. Sean, can I just add to that? I mean, in my experience, when we used to have um, framework agreements at UKGI with all of the arms-length bodies, actually, we found it an incredibly powerful thing because the discussion, as you say, the discussion is really important. And very often, it provoked a reaction from the, the, the owner department that revealed they didn't really want this thing to be arms-length. And, you know, it, it provoked some of those conversations that you need to have up front rather than uh, having them after the fact. Uh, so if used well, I think framework, uh, framework agreements... I mean, it's like, it's like a performance appraisal, and it? it's not about what's in the appraisal, it's the discussion that goes around it. Actually, I think the setting up of the framework agreement can uh, be an incredibly powerful tool. Um, we've got a well, the, the lady in the yellow jacket and the lady in the red dress, please. Thank you. Uh, Christina Stewart from the Treasury. We're currently looking at setting up, uh, consulting on setting up an anti-money laundering arm's length body, so consulting next year. So fascinating event. Thank you so much. Um, my question is kind of how you, um, there's this key kind of trade-off between the government department helping to set up the strategy and the mission, whereas the new arm's length body are having a blank slate kind of dream, as you mentioned, Kate. I'm wondering how you see that trade-off and any clear lessons learned that you've had from that, as well as how to avoid options paralysis and kind of set, just taking that step and setting up and then going from there. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll take this question as well. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Natalie Prosser, I'm the CEO of the Office for Environmental Protection and uh, we're a new uh, statutory LB turned one uh, last week. Um, so I was involved from eight months before the OEP became a legal entity, so uh, literally at the coalface of startup. And one of the things that I found very surprising is although there is 
clear guidance about the circumstances when you set up a new ALB. There is no playbook for setting up an ALB. Uh, and I gleaned a lot of my insight from other CEOs or, or leaders who'd gone through the same process very recently. Um, I wonder if the panel might want to reflect on whether there would be real benefit in capturing the knowledge of uh, those setup teams uh, to share that learning uh, for other people going through the same process because uh, I know from experience that the Gantt chart covered about two-thirds of what I actually needed to know. I had to figure out the rest on the fly. Thanks so much. And I'm going to add to that a question that's coming online, which is somewhat relevant, which is asking, do we need a different legal form for public bodies um, together with a different registration to bring a greater standardisation to the way public bodies are incorporated? incorporated? That's from Martin Wheatcroft. So um, incorporation of bodies, um, lack of a playbook, uh, options paralysis, so three related questions. Who would like to start us off? Should I like to start Shall with the yeah. options side? It's a really good point. Um, we didn't get into the sort of detail of that balance between how much sort of an ALB led the way versus how much the department led the way in terms of setup. But I think it is a really interesting tension. I suppose on the options appraisal, um, I think we found that the reverse was true, that, that there weren't enough options being considered, but I completely appreciate that equally you, do not, you, you don't want options paralysis either. I would say that, you know, Treasury business case guidance is, is great. Um, the public bodies team in the Cabinet Office are also really helpful. Um, and um, I think they're, they're very open to kind of discussing in practical terms <coughs> what kinds of options and how you kind of curtail the number of options to make them realistic as opposed to a shopping list of these are all the ways that we could do something. Um, so I think a combination of those and probably speaking to colleagues that have set things up and, and perhaps, you know, um, got it wrong maybe in the business case and wish that they selected different options um, is probably a good way to, to start off. So. I mean, to, to the sort of first question predominantly, I, I would say that you have got to be really clear as to why you are setting this body up. You know, it's that crisp question of why, why is this best done at arm's length? And then the question, you know, what flavours of arm's length have you got? Because there are quite a few. Uh, so, you know, which one of those matches the clarity of what it is that you, you think you're trying to achieve? But the execution of that, you know, by its nature, has to be then brought alive and interpreted by the body itself. And you can't mitigate for that fully because, you know, you are setting up a body to have um, an identity of its own. But I think that that first question is, is one to spend quite a bit of time on and to sort of, um, you know, gather others, others' views on what does and doesn't work and, and what might be, uh, you know, the, the purpose that you're kind of aiming for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I think sometimes the word strategy kind of covers too much. Um, and, and certainly one of my reflections when we were doing the Green Investment Bank setup was that you know, part of the job in government was sort of repelling all borders in, in a way in that you know, we, had, we were set up <coughs> as having a double bottom line. So, so that was um, you know, financial returns, but also a, a green return. And at various points, people decided that, you know, this was the great thing to add in kind of social returns and, and all the rest. And I think just being really clear about what are those handful of political goals that you're asking the institution to deliver on. And then it's up to the institution to work out the strategy to, to deliver against those. And, and the problem is, I think strategy is often used to cover both of those things, but, but, but it, it, it's quite different. Um, yeah, I'd love the learnings handbook as well. I don't know whether that's Matthew's job. Do you, do you pull together from this or something, a, a brochure? Or well, this something? event is a first step. Yeah. Um, 
Can I just agree with both panelists on the, on the strategy point and just reinforce it? From, from my perspective, the sort of the next phase, the setup, the org design, they're getting into operations, it goes wrong when there isn't leadership alignment. I know it's a bit of a buzz phrase. So if the why and the purpose and the goals isn't clear, just have a think about getting too quickly into org design and structures and charts and people appointments because it's sort of set up not for success if that happens. In terms of the handbook, I, I rather think somebody should challenge UKGI, which claims to incubate organisations to write it. Um, uh, if they haven't done so, then that is remiss of them. <laughs> I've left now, so I can do that. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Kerry. Um, let's take a few more questions from the room. I can see the gentleman right at the back right, Peter. Um, the lady here, the gentleman in the green jumper. Uh, so, Peter Horn, nice group. Um, sort of following up from the question asked from the Treasury team over there, I'd be interested as to the point at which, uh, so there's a point at which the sort of policy officials are thinking about the creation of an organisation, and then there's a point in future where you have a board in place and you have a leadership team in place. How quickly do you think you need that leadership team and the board in place for success? Thank you. And the lady here in the orange jumper. Elisa Eid from the Department for Transport and Rail Reform. Um, I'm interested in the idea of an, creating an independent body but then retaining democratic accountability. And at what point um, does the democratic accountability require controls to step in to override that independence? Yeah, tricky question. Thank you. And the gentleman in green. Um, hi, I'm Rich Walker. I'm at Bayes, part of the team that's setting up the future system operator. Um, so the future system operator will be a body in the energy sector, but it will also be regulated by Ofgem, which is another, which is a non-independent, non-ministerial uh, non, uh, non department, sorry. So it will be a body that has one sponsor department as Bayes, but it will also have strong links out to Ofgem as the regulator. So in some ways, we'll have two bodies involved in setting out its structure and strategy. And I wonder if you have any thoughts, panel, about how you can effectively go about setting up relationships with a body that has multiple government owners in some ways. Interesting. Thank you. So the pace of getting the board in place, democratic accountability, and how do you deal with multiple organisational bosses when setting up a new body? So uh, three easy questions for the panel. <laughs> um, Oliver, do you want to start? Sure. <laughs> yeah, <happy> to. Um, <laughs> So I think my logical mind, Peter, would say that you, know, you should have your chair in as um, employee number one, um, who should recruit the chief executive, who then recruits the executive team, um, and the chair also recruits the, the NEDs, and, and you have your, your board going early. And, and I think that's the, that's the logical um, way, way to go. And I think on my reflection on the TRAs, it sort of all happened at the same time, and that, it's then very difficult to imagine that everyone's going to be brilliantly aligned, as, as, as Alex was, was talking about. So, you know, I also agree really strongly with Kerry that the, the value that corporate governance provides is serially um, underestimated within so Whitehall. Don't get it. Don't get it at all, um, because the sense that it's just a thing that's out there. Whereas, you know, having been in Whitehall a lot, the, the amount of scrutiny I get, for example, on my risks or my finances is it's just completely different order um, being in, in an arm's length body. Um, so I think having those structures in from as early as possible, really, 
Um, we often make it difficult, as you say, Kate, because we parallel run um, on, on these things. But I think if you, if you had enough time, uh, I would certainly do it that way. And, and the, the democratic accountability is a, a, a great question. And you know, the, the technical answer, I suppose, is that as an accounting officer, which you will tend to be on these, you know, the, certainly I am, then you have your sort of your route to Parliament is through your Secretary of State and you know, regularly talk to your, your select committee. But I think more broadly it goes to that point about just always recognising um, that you have that political permit um, and, and that, you, that there is no reason why you, you exist. Um, but ultimately I think that, get, you know, in our case, that will go through the departmental line. Can I, can I, I want to disagree with Ollie, since he agreed with me, I, I should be uh, disagreeing. Um, I, don't think, <clears throat> I don't think you necessarily would go to uh, the, that logical structure of uh, chair first. And the reason for that is just thinking about your comment, uh, Alex, about temporary structure and permanent structure. I think actually what you need in your temporary structure is you need people who've got skin in the game who are going to feel an ownership over the organisation and will drive it in a certain direction. There need to be checks and balances to make sure that they're doing it right. But for me, one of, and what we did on the business bank is we had an interim chief executive appointed um, who had the potential and, in fact, did get the, the final job. But th they were there as part of the setup team in a very temporary structure. And then when we went to permanent, we then went to your logical model. But I just think in the way, you, you, the way you're doing things, because, I mean, so often the case you're dual running, you're running in, in shadow form alongside the, um, the kind of the details of what you're doing already, um, that I, I think you just need to be able to, to move to action quite quickly. In terms of um, democratic accountability, it is a great question. I, I was reading my MPLA essays before I came here, <laughs> uh, where actually this came up. So one of, my, one of the things I did wrong, uh, that I utterly, uh, I think, mishandled uh, in the business bank. So one of the things the business bank was meant to do was we tupied a bunch of civil servants in, and with it, responsibility for access to finance policy. The idea being people making policy would be closer to market and therefore would be better able to, to develop commercial, sensible products, rather than the olden days when we come up with things that work brilliantly in, pay, in theory, mm. lob it over the wall to some delivery thing, and then it just doesn't work because it's not, it's not deliverable. Um, but I, hadn't, I just hadn't thought it through exactly what it meant to have. Uh, you know, governments have been doing access to finance policy for years. You then try and subcontract it to an organisation, and yet the minister's on the hook for it. What you actually saw was they tupied all their access to finance staff into the bank and then recruited new ones uh, back at HQ a mere six months later and started rebuilding it, and then it got a conflict. Uh, I think it's a really, really challenging question. I do think it was right to have policy being developed by people closer to market. I don't know what the solution to that was, and I still can't work it through. What I do know is we didn't get it quite right, and you just saw the policy function being chopped off at the knees at regular opportunities in, by uh, Bayes. And I don't think some of the commercial people necessarily understood actually what policy was or valued policy making as much as they really ought to because it's central to their license to operate. Mm. So I think it's really, really thorny as, as a question. Mm. I, it, I hadn't quite realised that, that there was um, that background to the BBB, but certainly in the uh, infrastructure bank, you know, we don't do policy. We obviously have a policy team, but we're not responsible for infrastructure policy. But you know, we see our role as being a useful nexus between you know the markets and uh, you know and government departments in a way that you know we hope that over time we can improve policy making hand in hand with government departments and improve kind of market understanding of, of, of policy and certainly you know one of the challenges is there a way in which we can improve the way in which uh, you know grant funding works or the kind of efficacy of it 
Um, so, so that's a kind of you know model that we will we will kind of try and pursue and, and see where it goes. I think just to the final question, there are definitely other organisations that have probably had this. So I think Ofcom and DCMS have definitely had that challenge. So it might be worth going to talk to them. Um, yeah, and, and and just on the sort of uh, the first question about setup, we certainly had our chair in place, and then a very temporary chief executive, and then recruited the permanent chief exec, and that has worked really well, I think. Um, I just wanted to come in on the last question as well. I think it's really interesting that off chairman Bayes, I agree with you. I think it's not that rare. Certainly, sort of different forms of stakeholder involvement is not that rare. What I would say is, don't fudge it. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, you really do get kind of lack of clarity and frustration. And, and I would say just think through multiple scenarios, uh, really test how it might play out in, you know, in, in practice, play back to those stakeholders, maybe think about the dimension of time as well, because the answer in, I don't know, phase one might be different in phase two and three. Um, so, yeah, don't, don't fudge it. Thanks very much. Um, so we're almost out of time. I think we've got time just for a couple more questions uh, before we close. So we've got the lady on the front row here, um, or who's deferring to the gentleman next to her, and the, and the gentleman sitting behind with the uh, jacket. Um, thanks. Uh, Johnny Gallagher, uh, electricity system operator, future FSO, hopefully. Um, question on, I guess, managing the politics a little bit. Um, so maximum of two and a bit years until the next election no legislation in place to set up the FSO potential for political change. And I wondered if maybe the Green Investment Bank has some experience of managing changing politics and what sort of advice you would have for organisations in managing the potential for political change. Great, thank you. And the gentleman behind. Thank you. Aproop Pave, Chief Economist at the Trade Remedies Authority. Um, I wondered what our panelists thought were the ways in which new arm's length bodies can build up their reputation and credibility quickly. Great, thank you. And finally, I'm going to add um, questions from online and combine a couple, one's from Nick Muddle and one's from Anonymous. Um, both of these concerned with, I think, the objectives of an organisation and making sure they're really delivering uh, for uh, government. Nick Muddle, how can new public bodies create a performance framework that focuses on their delivery of value for the UK? And then an anomalous question, which is a concluding gift to the panellists of what could be considered an exemplar of a new public body that was successfully established and had a positive policy impact. So uh, creating the right impact, um, how to deal with policy change, uh, and building reputation. Um, Oliver, do you want to start, given the GIB question? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting, wasn't it, because you were saying you haven't got legislation. Um, and I was saying that you know, us having had legislation, in the end, didn't really um, <coughs> save us in the end. And, and I think, it, it's, for me, it's that point about um, the breadth of political permit. And you know, if you've got strong links into one political party, um, but you haven't got great support in, in broader civil society um, and across you know, the, the political divide, including it into, into the devolved, then you're going to be feeling a little bit more exposed going into the, uh, the, the general election. And, and so I think you know, whatever one can do to kind of build up a broader base of support there and to the extent that there is a track record to date, just a sense, look, we're doing a good job here. Um, this isn't just abstract. Um, you know, this is a good idea, and we're, and we're doing a good job against it. Um, I like that one on, on the, the positive impact. I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. So 
it's not an institution I know very well, but I think the CMA has done, done a really good job here in, in terms of having really sort of established themselves as um, sort of internationally well regarded um, and having done, I think, quite a difficult job in terms of um, moving from the institutions that, that they were before um, and having sort of put, put down those roots. So that would be my bid. Thank you. Kerry. Um, so I actually think the question about um, the political uh, challenge and political change and how do you establish a reputation are absolutely two sides of the same coin. The way you ensure you get a political consensus is by delivering and delivering well. So when the business bank was set up, it was seen as Vince Cable's bank. There was a huge question about whether it would survive. But actually, it was seen as delivering and delivering well, and it was uh, competent, uh, and it was politically useful. Um, and so there was a political consensus uh, developed that actually, when you went into the 2015 manifesto, no political party was looking to get rid of it. Some were looking to build on it, some were looking to change it slightly, but they all wanted to keep it. Um, and given the history of uh, access to finance bodies that I had been aware of, I mean, one of the things I felt very proud of was I thought I had at last been involved in creating an institution with some longevity. Um, and for that reason, I'm going to nominate the business bankers having had a positive <laughs> impact, because I do think uh, one of the things that I was most proud of was, although there are things it could have done better and there are still things it could do better, the fact that I think as an institution, it built up an organization uh, that uh, had a political consensus over why it exists, um, I think was quite remarkable given the, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of political change recently. Uh, having some political constants is quite an achievement. And, and that's a tribute to the exec at the time. Thanks, Kerry. And uh, Kate? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the managing the politics is uh, something with, you know, it's quite live for us at the moment because we're obviously trying to recruit. Uh, you know, we've got big recruitment drive and, and we get a lot of questions about, you know, in the context of the turmoil, are you going to exist, you know, in another year, two years, whatever. Um, but actually, we were in front of the PAC a couple of weeks ago and there wasn't loads of political pickup, but uh, there was um, a headline in the FT that said, Treasury has no plans to sell the, British, sell, uh, the UK Infrastructure Bank, which was you know, the sort of best bit of recruitment we could have had, really, to sort of <laughs> um, you know, reassure people we're trying to bring in from the private sector that um, you know, there was kind of stability. I think that's right, that the more you build um, a reputation uh, based on the, the outcomes and the outputs that you produce, so for us, the deals that we do, the way you can explain them transparently and clearly, um, then the better you build a reputation of trust from you know, all sorts of kind of different political quarters. So that's definitely one of the things that I would really advise kind of attending to and thinking about you know, confidently being able to explain why you're here to do what you do and you know what the what what the activity you've you've produced how that kind of delivers on that objective you know that's the way to kind of engage a really broad base audience so uh, i'll just if i may just build on on that because you, you linked reputation and politics and i think the performance management and reputation piece is linked and, and and designing performance management frameworks is also really hard right but um, Michael Barber, who was the, um, he was the um, <coughs> delivery unit lead many years ago and wrote about instruction to, deli to deliver, he always talked about the difference between KPIs, so that the, the metric, the target that you want the metric to get to, and the, crucially the trajectory between now and reaching that target. And I think one way to, to enhance reputation is to be very open about what those trajectories look like 
about how performance is mm. tracking and what yeah. you're doing when it's plus or minus to the planned trajectory. Mm. Thank you. Well, there's a huge amount here and much, much more we could discuss, but unfortunately we're, we're out of time. My, my apologies to those whose questions I didn't get to either in the room or online. Um, for those of you here in person, do feel free to continue the conversation over refreshments um, on the landing. Um, our thanks again to our sponsors for this event, uh, the Trade Remedies Authority and Deloitte. And uh, please do join us for our next event on procurement in the pandemic and beyond a week today at 12.30, for which you can register now on the IFG website. Uh, thank you all very much for coming, and please join me in thanking our panel, Oliver Griffiths, Sean Jones, Alex Massey, Kate McGavin, and Kerry Smith.